0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. I just want to share like a really quick story and then I want to kick it off to Jay. But in the the latter portions of 2019, I can't remember the specific date, but I taught on the necessity of presence in one of our midweek gatherings in this very room. And it was especially in light of the rise of, at the time, what was called the cyber disciple or the digital disciple, which at the time seemed like the big threat to being in person. And looking back, I realized that I took a lot of what I mentioned in that teaching uh, for granted. My, my assumption at the time, because I wasn't a, I'm not a prophet, I couldn't have just like, I wasn't a fortune teller, so I couldn't have seen in the future, but my assumption was that being together was just like a given. That's just what we do, and that embodied presence is, you know, God's people is just something very simple and easy to achieve, and it's like the obvious answer for Christian discipleship, and then only a few months later, that theory was really, really tested at the beginning of 2020, and while I still stand behind everything that was mentioned in that teaching uh, what I found now a year later, or a little over a year later, is a much greater appreciation and conviction for presence, being together, and, and how it is essential to Christian community. It's essential to ministering to others, and it's really essential to experiencing the fullness of Jesus Christ, and so as we're now in the mid to, God willing, late stages of COVID the COVID pandemic and gatherings like right now are beginning to happen Uh, I think what we've all found is that there have been good habits that have been formed over the last year and which we could probably count on our left hand but a few and then there are probably some bad habits that have been formed over the last year which probably are more numerous And so I think it's never been more important that we have a solid conviction uh, that Christianity involves real people in real places, in real time, and, and, and actually have a conviction as to why these things are important so that we won't take them for granted in the future. Moving forward, I wanna make sure that I don't take for granted the ability to be with real people and experience God within community And that's why I'm really glad to invite Jay Kim, our our guest tonight, to speak on the topic of analog community in the digital age. Jay serves as a lead pastor of teaching at Westgate Church in the Silicon Valley, and also teacher in residence at Vintage Faith in Santa Cruz. He's the author of a book that I believe has been handed out to everyone. If you didn't get a copy, it's going to be in the back called Analog Church and he lives in the Silicon Valley with his wife Jenny and their two small children. And um, so he's going to be teaching for, for a, a portion of our night and then during that time um, there's this number right here and what we're going to do in the second half of our night is do a Q&A. But that Q&A is actually going to be based on the questions that you guys present. So please if uh, Jay says something that sparks something in you or a question arises, uh, text in your questions to 209-981-8099, and then we'll tackle those questions toward the end of our evening together. So if you guys would give Jay a hand.
1: Thanks, Christian. Hi, everybody. Man, it's so good to be with you guys, and I, um, I, I so genuinely mean that. It's so good to be with you guys. In a room and i know uh we're recording and some folks will watch this later and that's okay (laughs) no guilt i i hope you enjoy it and get something out of it but it really is great to be in a room with with all of you and um it just you know it's different i think what what covid19 this whole pandemic this past year if it's taught us anything it's taught us that there are some things that um you can't really measure with like numbers You know, that uh, you can't really put your finger on, um, but you just know, like in your body and bones, that there's something lacking when we are so disembodied with each other. And I think we're going to try to sort of figure that out for many months and years to come, why that is and what that looks like and what it means. But what it certainly means amongst many things, I think, I believe personally, have a deep conviction, what it means is that it's true, what the Bible tells us. That we are embodied creatures made by God when He breathed life into dust and dirt and bone. Like He he animated real stuff, like the stuff of earth, you know. And that's undeniable. To be human is to be embodied. To be alive is to have a body. And uh, as embodied creatures, we need embodied creatures, you know. And so um, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that tonight. And to do that, I want to share a story, Um, to begin, I want to share a story from my life that's actually quite embarrassing on my part. This happened uh, several years ago, but I was in my kitchen, and um, at the time, my daughter was really young. She was like maybe two, two and a half, something like that. And uh, my daughter, um, oh, no, 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 she was three, because my son was, he had just been born And they're about three years apart. So my daughter's three. My son is like literally newborn. He's like weeks old. And uh, I'm I'm in the kitchen, and they're kind of in this little playroom that's right adjacent to the kitchen. And I'm watching them play, and my son, my newborn son, is just laying on his back, you know, giggling, making funny sounds or whatever. And my daughter, who's three, leans over to him, and she hugs him, and she gives him a kiss on the cheek. And uh, I do the thing you're supposed to do, right, in those moments, you know, Um, because the thing you're supposed to do is not to, like, be fully present and enjoy the moment. It's to make sure your phone remembers that the moment happened because if you don't have a picture, did it really happen, right? So I pull out my phone, I open my camera, and I snap, like, you guys, I snap the perfect picture at the perfect moment. Like, it was one of those all-timers that I knew was going to be a massive hit on social media. I was like, here we go. Here's my Instagram hit of the month, you know, maybe the year, whatever. And um, so I take the picture. I have it on my phone. I'm staring at it. It's so awesome. And now I'm trying to edit it, right, with all my little phone photograph editing programs. I'm trying to crop it just right so it sits as the background of my phone. And I'm trying to change the color to make sure the highlights are correct, whatever, all of that stuff. I'm just totally immersed in my phone in this image of my children that I had just captured digitally. And I'm like so proud of myself and I'm so happy, right? And all of a sudden I feel a tug on my leg, like a pull, like a hard pull on my leg. And I look past the digital image of my children to see one of my actual human children pulling on my pants. My daughter, and she looks up at me with um, longing eyes, and she says these words, No more email, Daddy, no more email. Because my little girl at the age of three had already become so accustomed to being physically in the presence of her dad, while her dad was in every other way completely absent. Usually um, spiraling into the endless pit that is email. And while I wasn't actually on email in that moment, for her, she had experienced this enough times in her three short years of life that she assumed the same thing was happening. That daddy was in the room, but in every other way, he was somewhere else. You know what I'm saying? You've had this experience, yes? And so what did I do? I put my phone down, I put down the digital image of my children, and I picked up my actual children. I apologized to my little girl, I held her in my arms and we played. Now I share that story with you as embarrassing as it is, but I share it with you because in some ways it's not that embarrassing, because I know you all in this room, and I don't even know you really, I know that you can relate. That is how pervasive our digital addictions and our digital problems are. That I can walk into a room full of folks that I've generally never met before and share a story like that and know that I have a room full of people who know exactly what I'm talking about. Again, I, I, many of you I'm meeting for the first time right now and I already know for a fact that none of you are looking at me like, wow, that story is crazy. Who does that? None of you are feeling that way. You all know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you, too, have lost yourself in the digital maze at the expense of real life happening all around you. And shortly after that experience with my daughter, I was um, having lunch by myself at a, at a restaurant um, during a work day. And I was, again, on my phone. This time, I was actually on email. So, like, burrito in one hand, phone in the other. And all of a sudden, uh, this restaurant was actually right next to a local high school, and that local high school has an open campus policy, meaning at lunchtime they let their students go off campus. And so it's lunchtime, and all of a sudden, I see high school students filing into the restaurant for lunch together in groups of, like, friends, friend groups, all walking in together. Pretty normal. And so I decide to put my phone down and just people watch for a little bit. And I'm people watching with um, something very specific in mind. And I watched that day at lunch. I watched 14 high school students walk into this restaurant. And I, um, i like, I must have kind of looked like a creeper because I was just like watching them. <laughs> um, but uh, I watched them throughout lunch until like, like they had to go back to school. And it, was, it wasn't that long. They don't get that long for lunch, but they were there for probably 20, 25 minutes. And I watched them for the duration of that 20-25 minutes and 14 students, I counted 14 high school students, none of them alone, all of them with at least one or two other friends. I watched 14 high school students at lunch at that restaurant for the overwhelming majority of that lunch, having lunch in the presence of one another with their phones in their hand. 13 out of 14 of them had phones in their hand almost the entire time. And the one that didn't have a phone in his hand, I just assumed that like he had his phone taken away by his teacher or something because he was going table to table just watching what his friends had on their phones. And um, again, I share a story like that with you, and I know that you can relate. Because either you've been that person at the table, or you've observed this phenomenon of the digital age, Right? Where people are present with one another, but they're not actually present with one another. They are, in the words of the writer Sherry Turkle, um, in this fantastic book, the title of the book, she says, we are all alone together. She says in that book, and this reminds me of my story with my daughter, she says this. Oh, I had my wrong notes up. She says this, children have always competed for their parents' attention. But this generation has experienced something new. Previously, children had to deal with parents being off with work, friends, or each other. Today, children contend with parents who are physically close, tantalizingly so, but mentally elsewhere. We are alone together. Physically close, tantalizingly so, but mentally, emotionally, and so many other ways, we are elsewhere now what has covid revealed to us because during this pandemic for the most part we have actually had to be not even physically close like we've had to actually practice actual physical social distance from one another And you read, if you were following along or just through your own experience, you read early on and experienced early on this thing called Zoom fatigue or digital fatigue, yes? Who felt Zoom fatigue at some point during the pandemic? Yeah, almost everybody in the room. Like, we have all the technology we need to be able to connect with one another, but what we're realizing through the pandemic is that the sort of connection we have through digital means needs air quotes, does it not? Like, it is connection, but it's not connection in the sort of full human way that human beings really long for and desire. Now, I want to ask a question. How did we get here? And I, and I don't, don't mean the pandemic. I just mean, in general, even before the pandemic, how did we get to a place where we became so comfortable mediating our relationships primarily through digital means? truth is, a lot of people want to blame the internet. A lot of people are like, oh, everything was great before the internet, but the internet has ruined everything. The digital age is to blame. And the truth is, if you go even into the biblical story, what it reveals to us is that technology, and specifically the misuse or abuse of technology at the hands of human beings, has been ruining us since almost the beginning. Let me show you. This is Genesis chapter 11. Now, if you know um, a little bit about how the Bible is laid out, what you know is that Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tell the story of a good God creating a good world for his glory and for our good, for human flourishing, right? And then in Genesis 3, sin enters the story. If you were here at Reality this morning, we talked very briefly about this. Sin enters the story, and then actually... From Genesis chapter 3 all the way until Genesis chapter 11, what you have is a series of stories that are actually intended to be understood and read in a connected way. Genesis 3 to 11 is essentially the story of like what happens to humanity when sin takes over, when we no longer live according to the way God designed for us to live. And so Genesis 3 through 11 is that story, like broken story after broken story, pain and betrayal and violence and murder, like all of this stuff, all this wickedness, and it concludes with Genesis chapter 11. And this is like one of the last stories before we get to the story of Abraham and how God is going to rescue his people out of sin and death. This is one of the last stories, like sort of summarizing and culminating what happens to human beings when we allow sin to just run rampant all around us. This is what it says, Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, if you were here this morning, we talked about this, right? Eastward motion, what that represents. It's essentially movement away from God, away from God's plan. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had, and this is um, only the beginning of what they um, had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Okay, a few things here. On the surface, this doesn't actually read like it's a story about technology. Some of you already know this story. You're like, oh, no, Jay, this is just... Tower of Babel story where everybody has one language and then um, they end up speaking a different language first of all language is a technology so it is a technology story but even more than that it's more emphatically a technology story let's just take it step by step and you'll see what I mean first it says that the whole world had one language and the same words this means that they had a common speech they literally it's like we all speak English or we all speak Mandarin, or we all speak um, French, or whatever it is. That's what it literally means. They spoke the same language. They had a common speech. And so we see in the story that they begin in some ways, unified. They're able to communicate. They're unified as one people. And we see that emphasized because they actually say, like, you know, let's do this. Let's build this tower so that we don't get scattered about. Like, we want to remain kind of unified. But then the story continues. Again, as the people migrated from the east. And so that that sort of geographic location in the story is, again, to remind us sin, right? They're east because God has banished them toward the east from the Garden of Eden because of sin. And so it's a reminder that this is, like, not a good story. Something bad is happening here. And then here's where more technology comes into play in verse 3. What does it say? They had brick for stone and bitumen, that's tar, for mortar. This This is like emphatic technological language. Essentially, it's saying that to build this building, they use human ingenuity. They use the technology of their day to build this tower. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that. This is a really critically important point. Technology, for the most part, technology does not have a morality. People want to blame the internet for problems, but the reality is the internet in and of itself is not immoral. It is human misuse and abuse that turns technology into a harmful reality in our lives. Now this is also not to say that there are always good intentions on the part of designers of technology. That's also not true. Um, Some of you have seen the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. Yes, how many of you guys have seen that, right? Okay, there's a guy in that documentary named Tristan Harris. Yeah, you guys remember him? If you know Tristan Harris, his work, um, he used to be a, a design ethicist at Google. And that's a fancy way of saying he was hired by Google to make them seem very ethical. And he actually quit because, and he's very public about this, he quit because what he realized is that Google hired him for the optics and not to make actual change. Because to be ethical in their design would cut away at their bottom line financially. To be ethical in the way they design, and I'm not bashing Google, you guys. I use Google. Maybe you work for Google. Maybe you just, you're a big Google fan. I don't know. Don't be offended. I'm just telling you what Tristan Harris says. He basically came out, and he's come out publicly and said, like, no, no, no. Design companies have to make money. Company big, mega tech companies like Google and Instagram, whoever else, YouTube, they have to make money. And the way they make money is to monetize a particular commodity. And he says something really fascinating. He says that when you download a social media app on your phone, like Instagram or YouTube or whatever, Google Chrome to do search, whatever, how much does it cost? How much do you pay for Instagram? Zero. How much do you pay for Twitter? Zero. YouTube? Zero. Okay. You pay nothing for these apps, correct? So you think that they're free, yes? He says nothing is free, and he's exactly right. There is a commodity being exchanged, and if it is free to you, it's because you are the commodity, like you're the thing being sold, you, you think you are the user, but you are actually the used, that's what Tristan Harris says, and he's right, he's right your information, your data, your preferences. It's curating your entire digital experience so that companies can sell you more products. Now again, it sounds like I'm bashing digital, but the whole point here is that everything I'm saying is not about the technology itself, is it? It's about the human misuse and or abuse of the technology. Like Instagram can't really use you if you don't use Instagram. or if you use it in a moderate way. And Instagram as an application isn't really that harmful. It's just photographs that you post for other people. It's our use and misuse. So again, this is a technological story. Um, Bricks and bitumen or tar, um, they're not bad in and of themselves. But look at what happens in the story says in verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And here's the key. Think about misuse and abuse. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Okay. So the people say, let's use technology. Not necessarily a bad thing. Technology doesn't have a morality. But let's use technology to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. And most scholars believe that this tower they're talking about was a very common um, structure in the ancient world called a ziggurat. Anybody ever heard of a ziggurat? These are very common religious structures in the ancient Near Eastern world. And ziggurats had one functional purpose, you guys. They were always structures designed to be built as an invitation for the gods to visit us here on earth. Okay, that might sound like it's not important, but listen to that. Ziggurats, the Tower of Babel, these towers always, they were always in the ancient world designed as structures to be built so that the people could invite God or the gods to come down and visit them on earth. But what do the people here say about the tower? Anybody remember? What do they say? Why do they want to build the tower? To go up. Not to invite God to visit them. They say, hey, let's use technology to build this tower, a ziggurat, not so that we invite God to be with us, but so that we can go up and reach the heavens. It's a way of saying so that we can reach God's status, And make a name for who? Ourselves. You see what's happening here. They're using technology, which isn't bad in and of itself, but they're using it for extremely selfish gain. This is the misuse and abuse of technology. And so what happens? Verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth. So the thing that they feared the most... That they would lose their unified power is exactly what happens because of their misuse and abuse of technology. So I'll show you sort of um, just a four-part trajectory, technological trajectory that we see at the Tower of Babel that we've seen time and time again throughout human history when it comes to technology. We often begin unified, selfish ambition takes over, we leverage technology, and we end up scattered. Does this sound familiar? Remember when the internet first came about and everybody was promising us the global village? Do you guys remember that? So you're too young to remember. When the internet was first on the rise in the 90s, there were all these articles from experts and prognosticators saying, the internet is going to change everything. It's going to make us one people. I'm not kidding you guys, Google some of these articles. There were like these wild, fantastical articles about how people believed that the internet could potentially do away with like nations and countries and stuff. There were actually people in the 90s who were writing things like, this could actually globally change everything where the internet is gonna make us one people, like truly one people. But what's happened? The internet, and in particular social media applications, has amplified our selfish ambition. Think about the self-centric despair you feel inside the more you scroll through your feed. You do it because um, it's like some form of free entertainment, but how often do you get off of a long scrolling session of Instagram and just feel way better about yourself? How often do you get off Twitter and you're like, man, that was super uplifting. Just that 30 minutes I spent scrolling Facebook, reading all those posts about politics, and just, dude, I just feel so encouraged. You're laughing because that's so ridiculous. Because the reality of our experiences are that the longer we spend scrolling, actually, oddly enough, the more miserable we feel. We find ourselves dying in our self-centric despair because of selfish ambition. Either we read things on our scrolling during our scrolling sessions that just really upset us, or we see like all the Instagram highlights of our friends posing as if that's their real life, and we compare those glossy images to the actual real lives we're living now, and we just feel super down and bummed out like, man, my life doesn't look like his life or her life. When in reality, they're feeling the same thing. Selfish ambition just completely undoes us. We continue leveraging more and more technology. And then what happens? Rather than a global village, where are we now? We're just like a scattered collection of individuals, all spiraling into our self-centric despair. I mean, we end up, all of us, like those high school students at lunch. Like, sort of with each other, but alone together. Sherry Turkle, again, in another book called Reclaiming Conversation, she says that we begin to think of ourselves in the digital age as a tribe of one, loyal to our own party. So the question, what, what is the remedy to all of this? How do we figure this out? I would suggest to you one particular way to think about it is this. While we can communicate in digital... We can only commune in analog. And by analog, I mean physical, tactile, embodied. The Christian word for it would be incarnational, in the flesh, what Jesus did when he came to earth.
0: Um,
1: And these two words, communicate and commune, they have some elasticity of meaning. And so let me try to define them for you the way I intend. Um, to use these words. By communicate, I mean the exchange of information. Digital is great for communicating. Digital is really great for exchanging information. If the goal is to exchange information with someone, digital away, for sure. But communing is the exchange of presence. It's the exchange of your whole-bodied self giving to another that which words alone or information alone specifically cannot give. And that, obviously, can only be done in analog. A couple weeks ago, I was in Colorado for a few days, and um, while I was in Colorado, the Wi-Fi was spotty where I was, but I got this one little spot at the, the, the place where I was staying, And um, it had decent Wi-Fi, and so I would stand there, and it was outside, and it was early March, and it was very cold, and there was snow, but I would stand outside in this one little spot where I had decent Wi-Fi, and I would FaceTime my wife and my kids every day while I was gone because um, I'm so grateful for that technology, right, that while I'm physically away from them, I can at least still see their faces and hear their voices. But what did my time FaceTiming them really do at the core of me? Was it satisfactory? No. What it really did was make me just grow in my longing to hop back on a plane, fly home, drive to the house, walk through the front door, and hold my real kids and my real wife in my real arms, give them real hugs, and give them real kisses. You all know what I'm saying, yes? Okay, now why do we feel that way? Well, maybe I felt that way because my wife and my kids are my family. And maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, that's because that's your wife and those are your kids. Of course you're going to feel that way. But Jay, isn't FaceTiming and digital, it's just fine for everybody else? Or like church, I can just watch church at home because, you know, that's family. But church is just church. I can watch Christian preach at home and whatever. It's like not that big of a deal. Here's the thing. Why does the Bible primarily in the New Testament especially why does it primarily use family language to describe what it means to be a part of the church we actually have lost some of the power in this there's this really this isn't I'm just going off on a tangent here but this is important um, there's this really obscure passage in one of Paul's letters where he tells the Christians he says hey you guys stop suing each other like Christians in this city were actually taking each other to court over over disagreements now here's what you need to know suing each other in the ancient Greco-Roman world was pretty normal it was fairly acceptable behavior there were courts where you can go and sue your neighbors and sue business partners because they'd wronged you and get money or whatever right or reparations or whatever it was right okay so it was pretty normal but why does Paul say hey you guys are you guys are like Christians Christians should not sue each other why does he say that in the Greco-Roman world there was only one situation in which a court would not allow you to sue each other. You know what it was? It's when a brother and sister or any two siblings that shared the same father tried to sue each other. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, the most important familial bond you can experience was not even between spouses. It wasn't husband and wife. It was actually between brothers and sisters who shared the same father. And so in the ancient Greco-Roman world, if you went to court and you were like, I'd like to sue him, and the judge said, or whoever the person was, I don't think they called them judges, whoever the person was said, who is that? And if I were to say, that's my brother, the judge would say, what sort of brother? And if I were to say, my actual blood brother, we share the same father, you know what the judge would do? The judge would say, that's a family matter, settle it amongst yourselves. Okay. This obscure passage, Paul tells the Christians, why are you suing each other? And then you know what he he says? He says, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, he goes, you're not supposed to sue each other. You are what? What do you think? Brothers and sisters. We think Paul meant, and the New Testament means this as a metaphor. Like, we think it's just a nice thing to say to each other. Like, hey, man, you're my bro. No. No, 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 no. When Paul and the New Testament tells us we are brothers and sisters, what Paul means, very literally, is like, you're literally brothers and sisters. To the point where he's like, you can't sue each other. That's the law of the land. Brothers and sisters who share the same father don't sue each other. Okay, so coming back full circle. You might look at me and say, Jay, you FaceTime your family and you want to be with them, but that's because it's your family. Suggests suggest to you, yes. And that's, ex- that's exactly how, how high the bar has been set for us. That we are to love and long for one another as family. Brothers and sisters. And with family, like with real family, FaceTime is not enough, is it? Now here's the thing. Everything I just said is really hard to do. <laughs> Like I am not saying it's super simple. It's like, come on, why? Why is it not simple? Let me let me explain. You are you already know this, but let's just put some words behind it. Digital communities. Think about like um, the group of friends you have on Instagram or Facebook or the people you follow on TikTok or Snapchat or whatever, right? Twitter, whatever. Digital communities are based on our preferences, and it is easy to choose and unchoose them how long does it take you to block or or to unfollow someone on Twitter less than a second it it is quite literally the push of a single button right okay analog communities are based on who's there and it is difficult to choose and unchoose them when you show up to reality Stockton how easy is it for you to look around at a Sunday worship gathering and decide the people you don't really like that much or those that sort of annoy you, how easy is it for you to um, block or unfollow them? It, it's almost impossible. Like, because really, analog community is like, here I am, and here you are. And here we are, right? It's really difficult. Now, here's the thing. Followers of Jesus are drawn into relationship with one another not out of preference, but out of calling. The fact that you are drawn in and bound up into a family of God with people that are unlike you, people you do not prefer, people you would not have chosen on your own, that is the means by which God shapes and reshapes you into the sort of person he has called you to be. This is a critical part of Christian formation that I think we're losing in the digital age. Everything about social media tells us that we can curate our life experiences to suit our preferences just so. But real life doesn't work that way. And if it did work that way, you know what would happen to you? You would stay exactly who you are right now. There would be no growth, no change, no challenge of who you are and a calling to grow and evolve and be formed and reformed into the image of the risen Christ. Listen, Jesus himself models this from the get-go. Matthew chapter 10 There's this obscure little passage where it just rattles off Jesus' 12 disciples. You guys all know this. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, son of Zebedee. And John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas. And pay attention to this. Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, um, Alphaeus and Thaddeus. And then, pay attention to this. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed it. Okay. Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. If you can imagine the most Trump supporting conservative you know on social media and the most Biden Kamala Harris supporting liberal you know on social media, and think imagine them in the same room together talking politics. Just imagine it in your mind. Multiply that tension by a hundred. And you're beginning to scratch the surface of how intensely hateful zealots and tax collectors were of one another. Zealots were were Jewish people who wanted nothing more than to overthrow the Roman Empire. And there was only one group of people they hated more than actual Romans it was tax collectors. Because tax collectors were actually Jewish people who had betrayed their own people, sided with the Roman Empire, and were getting rich by skimming money off the top, not of the empire, but of their own people. And tax collectors hated zealots because zealots were often guilty of physically attacking, sometimes killing, tax collectors. So imagine Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot when they first start following Jesus. And there's these 12 guys. You can imagine Simon way over here just kind of eyeballing Matthew. And you can imagine Matthew way on the other side just kind of eyeballing Simon the zealot, wondering when he was going to attack. If there are ever two people that should not belong in a group together, it would have been in the first century zealots and tax collectors. And yet, here they are. It's not an accident that Matthew, in his gospel telling of this story, cites these descriptive words for Simon the Zealot and himself, Matthew the tax collector. The writer Brett McCracken says in his book, Uncomfortable, commitment matters more than compatibility in the kingdom of God. This is why it matters that we do not live in the preference-based digital spaces all the time. And instead, do the hard work of showing up with one another. Because it is in our very differences that God begins to shape us together collectively into his family. This is why the Bible is full of The the one another, you've heard this before, serve one another, bear with one another, speak to one another, meet together, encourage one another, offer hospitality to one another, experience fellowship with one another, confess to one another, listen, learn, pray, and eat together. These things are all difficult at best and impossible at worst to do over Zoom. Several years ago, uh, I was a youth pastor and every summer we used to take our students to a lake and we'd rent these houseboats and uh, do like wakeboarding and tubing and all that kind of stuff. And one year, um, we had like a hundred kids go into this camp and uh, we had this old like beat up box truck and every summer we would load that box truck with like all of the food and all of the equipment for the week. And so I usually didn't drive the box truck, but this one year I decided, you know what, I'll give some of my volunteer leaders a break. I'll drive the box truck. And so I I volunteered to drive the box truck, and I took, um, I had a 19-year-old intern at the time. His name was Brian. He's a dear friend of mine uh, to this day. And so I I was like, intern, Brian, come on, let's go. And so 19-year-old scrawny intern Brian and myself, I was like 25 or 26 at the time or something, we get into this beat-up box truck, and we start heading out. Um, to the lake, and we're doing great, and about an hour into our drive, smoke, black smoke, begins to billow out of the truck, long story short, we pull off to the side of the road, about 45 minutes later, uh, a tow truck finally gets us, gives us a tow, and we're, we're relieved, and so we get a tow to the, to the mechanic and there's a diner right across the street. We're starving. And so Brian and I go across the street. We think it's just going to be a couple of hours. He'll fix it. We'll be back on the road, hopefully get all of the food to the lake in time for dinner because we've got 100, 100 students who are now at this point already at the lake waiting for all of their stuff, including all the food and water. Otherwise, they're going to die, Right. So Brian and I are gorging on onion rings and burgers and stuff, and then I get a phone call on my phone, and it's the mechanic across the street, and he says, hey, um, your, your engine is pretty shot, but I think I can fix it. I'm like, great, how long is it going to take? He goes, well, with the parts I'm going to need, probably by Thursday. And this is like Sunday. It's like, oh, Thursday, so that's four days with no food and water. A hundred students will be dead, right? So I'm freaking out, like, what am I going to do? I've got literally all the food and water for a for hundred people at this lake, they're waiting for us now in this box truck and it, the truck can't move for four days. And so I look at Brian and I say, dude, I, I don't know. We, we're, you and I are gonna have to man up. And so I um, search online and I find that there's a U-Haul uh, about a mile or two down the road. And so I ask the mechanic, can you give me a ride to the U-Haul? The mechanic says, sure. And I look at Brian and I say, Brian, I need you with every fiber of strength, every ounce of strength you can muster. I need you until I get back with this U-Haul. I need you to unload everything in this box truck. Now, here's what you need to know. That box truck took like 12 people four hours to load. And now it's just me and this scrawny intern. And, and really, it's not even me. I'm leaving to go get the U-Haul. It's just the scrawny intern by himself. And he looks at me, and he's quivering. He's like, okay. And then he hops into the box truck, and he starts unloading stuff. I go and get the U-Haul, and I come back. And when I'm back, I'm so proud of him because he has unloaded about half of the truck. And I look at him, and he's got cuts, like, all over his legs. He's literally bleeding on the ground because he's been, like, just hopping up, moving stuff, scraping himself. He's bleeding, and he's sweating, and he's got his shirt off and so i'm so inspired by this i get out of this newly rented u-haul i jump in with him and we just start throwing everything out of the box truck because we're trying to get all of this food to the camp in time for dinner we know that these students are starving and so then i opened the u-haul and it wasn't pretty you guys and we didn't tie anything down but we just start lugging everything back into this u-haul and this all of this stuff all the food that had taken 12 people four hours to pack We unloaded and reloaded into a new truck in 90 minutes or something like that. And we're sweating and we're both bruised and literally bleeding. We're bleeding like all over the place. Because we had like firewood and I mean it was crazy. And so we get back on the road in this brand new U-Haul and we're making our way and we're exhausted and bloodied and bruised. And then, after an hour or two of driving, we can see off in the distance the lake. And we're both staring at the lake from the highway and I look at Brian and I realize he's crying. I said, Brian, are you crying? And he's like, yes. (laughs) And the funny thing is, I started crying, and like we both started crying, which is so weird, and we pull up to the lake, and all the kids are standing in a row, and I kid you not, you guys, it felt like a movie, they're all cheering, like we're pulling up slowly, and all the kids are like lined up, and they're like cheering, yeah, you made it, whatever, and we're both bawling our eyes out. And we finally park the truck and we get out and we hug each other and just collapse to the ground. And everybody else thought we were the biggest weirdos of all time. (laughs) Because that's a weird scene, right? But here's the thing. You had to be there. Like you can't really know unless you were there. You don't know what it's like to doubt together, to suffer together, and to bruise, and to bleed together, and to panic together, and to work together, and to hope together, and to finally arrive together. You don't know unless you were there. And so it is with the church. So my encouragement to you, as bloodied and bruised as you've been and may continue to be, show up. Because when you show up, And when you eventually arrive together, you'll experience something in you that others can't quite understand. That is the gift of Christian community. Amen? Amen.
0: Jay, we're really grateful for that teaching and that last line specifically, you had to be there, um, really summarizes the feel of embodied presence in the community and I think it's going to be really key in this next season, sort of like coming back out of COVID into embodied presence, being together. Um, These are the kind of experiences where um, we won't be able to. um, It can't be replicated through a digital media. And um, I think what is going to happen is that there's this like holy uh, sort of FOMO that's going to uh-huh. be, like, created, like, I, I, I want to be a part of that, and I, and I really hope that God stirs that within people. There are a lot of amazing questions, and I hope to be able to get through most of them, um, but in really no partic- particular order, but really just in the order that they came through, Matt, am, am I correct with that? Um, I'm just going to just start. Yeah. Uh, many folks have lost fluency in embodied presence. Even before the pandemic, connecting deeply in person was a struggle for some, and now it only feels worse. What practices or habits have you seen uh, that you find helpful for discipling people engaging, in engaging deep connections with others in community?
1: Yeah, I, I love the way the question is phrased, yeah. fluency, and I think that, um, that metaphor might be helpful there, you know, the metaphor it's not really even metaphor, it's you know learning the language of embodied presence, analog community again. Um, but it's interesting because uh, as the question is phrased, we've lost fluency. It's not that we were never fluent. I mean if you think about human experience, your initial experience as a human being is always analog. So Literally your first experience, you know, Christian and I are both fathers, so we both had this experience when a child is born, uh, what they do is like, once they clean the child off, the first thing the child has to do is what? Touch, like touch the mother and then the father. And actually, research has shown that when that doesn't happen, um, there are actual ramifications neurologically. It's like imbe- it's as if it's embedded in your DNA um, to make embodied connection with another person uh, right from the get-go. It actually sets you on the course to be fully human in a weird, in a strange way. I mean, but of course, it's God made us. That's what Christians understand and know. We are made in the image of a relational God who exists three in one in a constant relational connection of love and delight with, with not just himself, but like three in one with one another, right? In one. And um, so how do we regain that? I think it's more of a practical question. You know, some of it has to do with aptitude and appetite. Um, uh, I'll go on these spurts where I eat super unhealthy for a long time and then I kind of spiral into the unhealth but um, I've, had, I've had moments in my life where I start being intentional about getting healthy. So, like, one of the things I'll do, I just did it um, this past Saturday, I'll go run. I'll go for a run. Here's the thing, you guys, I hate running. I hate it. Like, I don't do it, because some of you love it, I hate it. And if you love it, I think you're weird, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know how people love running, but lots of my friends do. You're not really weird, I, I actually admire you, but... I hate running, but I do it and a strange thing happens. When I start running pretty regularly, even though I hate the journey, like the process of running, um, I find my appetite changing. Has anybody ever experienced this? Like I no longer crave the burger and the curly fries and it's super weird. Like I feel weird about it, but like I'll find myself wanting a salad and I never want a salad. It's so strange, but have you, seriously, has anybody experienced this? Okay, that is possible in your DNA. That's the way you are hardwired, and I think that's what we have to do with community. We cannot allow longing and desire to to guide us toward community. We have to um, move toward community out of discipline and find that our longing and desires will follow. Does that make sense? Like typically, culturally, we are told to follow longing and desire. But there is a way in which you discipline yourself and longing and desire follows the discipline. And I think that's, that's there's so much to say about that. It's such a great question, um, but I think that might be one way to think about it. That's great.
0: Um, have you learned, uh, have you learned anything about analog community through the last year that you didn't previously know or believe or were convicted about? Like, like the, the appendices or whatever you would add to the book now after experiencing the last year?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I'll speak honestly here. Um, I I wrote the book before the pandemic. I will say I have probably more appreciation for the digital technologies at our disposal than I did before. You know, Uh, I'm grateful looking back on 2020 that at least we had this you know um but in terms of anything i would change or add i think more than anything ultimately it's just affirmed um and strengthened my belief in in the reality that i think we really need embodied presence with each other if anything has changed it's that i probably didn't know how seriously we needed it um i i knew we needed it really bad but having gone through the pandemic I just, like most of you, I'm like, oh, I did not know how bad. I mean, you've read some of the really sad statistics about what the pandemic has done to mental health. Um, that's not an accident. Like when human beings are disconnected from one another, it has real like serious ramifications. I just, I read this political article like uh, a couple months ago that one in four young adults in our country admit to having at least contemplated ending their own life during the pandemic connected to feelings of loneliness and isolation one in four it's crazy i mean that also is a pandemic one in four like it's way more than COVID. you know and i'm not diminishing COVID. it's serious and all of that and I'm, I'm glad we you know work for the common good but man there's more than one pandemic and i think um yeah, that's that's one of the things that, that I've learned, just an affirmation of some of these ideas.
0: Um, how can we churches represented here pivot away from, you know, strictly digital platforms in the post-COVID season without then excluding or marginalizing large groups of people? I'll, now, I'll nuance, nuance this question. I love the, the, the encouragement to your 19-year-old scrawny uh, intern where you essentially said, like, dig deep and man up and, like, jump in. And so from the pastoral perspective, like, you know, part of me wants to say, like, hey, like, step in. But also the reality is that there are people that are very concerned and, you know, have health concerns or other concerns that, you know it's not it's not that easy to just like jump in and so how how can we as a church kind of kind of pivot away from strictly digital platforms without excluding marginalizing or maybe even inadvertently shaming large uh, groups of people
1: yeah yeah it's a great question Um, something I've thought about a lot you know as we kind of make our way back Um, yeah a couple of thoughts one I think Uh, What you said toward the end there, Christian, is like so critically important. Um, Let's just begin with a posture of generosity and humility. We don't really always know why a person is choosing X, Y, or Z. And it's not really for us to know unless you're in deep, meaningful community with someone and they have told you explicitly, I'm not going because it's way more convenient you know, to stay home and watch. Then, again, if you have a relationship that's meaningful and significant, has a history, I think there's uh, an opportunity to speak truth to that. But I'll segue um, from there, because I said the word convenience. I think a helpful way to think about it is, first of all, I think we're in for a hybrid future. I I think that that's undeniable, at least for a time, meaning people are not going to come back from the pandemic all at the same time. And as churches and as church communities, we have to do our best with generosity and humility and love and truth um, to try to make it as accessible as possible for those who don't yet feel comfortable. So I think digital will be a part of the future at least for some time. But I think as church leaders and as just congregants that are part of a community, as we invite people back, it's, it's going to be critically important that we... Um, are emphatic about a hierarchy of the hybridity. So digital and analog are not equal. Like digital and analog are not two options on a smorgasbord of church. Analog is always the goal. Like the most embodied you can be with, again, remember, church is family. So I don't have to go home tonight after this and see my wife and kids. I could just get a hotel, save myself the drive, you know, and just rest up. And I'll just FaceTime them. But what will I do after this? I'll drive the two hours home. Why will I do that? Because it's not the same. And they're my family. Like, I want to go see them before my daughter goes to bed whatever, right? And if my son's already sleeping, I just want to go in his room and give him a kiss. Like, you get that, right? Okay, so that's the church. It's not the same. Like, if you can't say it's the same for your most loved, beloved family member or someone you care about deeply, then you can't say it's the same for the church. So there has to be a hierarchy of hybridity, while also accounting for the fact that we have people who are shut-ins, like physically they can't get out, and we have to honor that, we have to do our absolute best. I have a friend who is a pastor in Gilroy, and um, what his church does is they have a a church service at the um, senior living facility where there are some shut-ins who belong to their church, who physically cannot get to their church. So they send a pastor every Sunday afternoon, he takes a DVD record, because they still have just DVD players there. He takes a DVD of the sermon, and he plays that. And then the pastor either will bring, like, a volunteer worship leader to sing some hymns with them, or if he can't find a volunteer worship leader because he doesn't do music, he'll just pray with them. And the, like, so it's digital, it's a DVD, but he's pushing as much analog as is possible for them. You see that, like the hierarchy And so I think that's critical, right? Um, If people are choosing digital out of comfort, then they're choosing wrongly, is what I would say. If they're choosing digital because they must, then we have to honor that and and do our best to to make it as analog as possible. So, yeah.
0: That makes me think that, actually, through this, that the church will revive some ancient practices that maybe we've lost along the way, like ministering to shut-ins, of rather than, you know, demanding that everyone come to the church, like, bringing the church to people, uh, in, in, you know, like, bringing the Eucharist to people, you know, like, to those who would not typically be able to gather with God's people and gather to the table, to, to go and to minister in the homes, and that's actually been something we've been thinking through and praying through in this next season, too, like, if someone says I cannot gather with the church and we're going to try in some way meaningful way to bring the church to you even if it means standing on your doorstep Uh, but there will be no excuse for not seeing you and um, I actually I I actually think that through some of this that we will be able to revive some like really meaningful practices that the Christian church has embodied for years and years and years but we've lost. this one changing gears here how can christians working in the digital or tech sector change the ethics or help change the narrative you were mentioning sort of the the nominal ethical you know branch of google or whatever but how can christians like meaningfully bring change in those places
1: yeah that's a great question it's actually a question that's so way above my pay grade you know um because and and mostly i say that because i i do understand and i and i can sympathize with the fact that if you work in tech and um, big tech especially, like whether your department declares this or not, the declaration of the company for which you work, by which you are employed, is to make money. You know, and I don't know to be honest. I don't know that there is much you can do on a um, broad level to ch- to sh- unless you're the COO or the CEO or something. That'd be amazing. Maybe you can, but then the board would fire you because you'd start losing money, right? So actually, uh, uh, Matt and Christian and I, over the lunch, we were talking a little bit about um, sort of like churches and sometimes the sort of like global emphasis. And I don't mean like supporting church plants or relief efforts in other parts of the world. I mean like when as churches, we say things like, um, we're gonna create a global church and what we don't mean is like the global church universal, like the church of Jesus Christ all over the world. We mean like my brand, like reality, you know, Johannesburg, that's, that Christian's leading from Stockton. You know, and if the Lord had Christian do that, that'd be amazing. We actually
0: had someone from South Africa today. Did you really? <laughs> there you go. So maybe that was,
1: that was a prophetic word, you guys. Get ready. Who's going to South Africa? No. Um, no, and we were talking about that saying, well, you know what feels much more like visceral calling is to do the thing God is calling me to do like right here, like for, in, my, in my home and then my neighborhood and my city, my town, my workplace. And so if you work in big tech, I would at least start there. I'm not asking you to stop there. But I think sometimes we get so like, man, I work for Apple and I need to just change Apple as a company, and I think that God can use you to do that. But I think the way He most often will use you to do that is for you to change culture within your team, or like your little your cubicle mate. I don't know if you have cubicles at Apple or whatever. You know what I mean? To be um, just a small glimmer of light in really dark places, one day at a time. You know, to have the conversations um, at the table you know at lunch that really um, draw out the humanity in, in your coworkers, rather than just talking about how you're going to continue conquering the world together and sharing Jesus in those simple um, but very human ways I think in big tech and just in big companies and it happens in big churches too like sometimes we get so enamored with the massive um, that we forget you know that sometimes there isn't really that much meaning found in those sorts of places. At least like when we mentally assent to those ideas of like, I'm gonna change the, you know, just the tech sector as a whole, whatever. Um, I, think, I think really doing the next thing that God has before you is the, is the means by which you can create real change. I, I guess a metaphor would be to say, change happens with um, a chisel, not a hammer. You know, we often want to take, like, Thor's hammer and just smash it to bits and, and then rubble and rebuild. I actually think it happens usually just chiseling it, chiseling away like a sculptor, you know. Um, so, there you go. Couple
0: yeah, I'm reminded Jesus says, you know, like, be faithful in the small things. And I'll make you faithful. In the, and so we got to think, like, what are our small spheres? What, what culture can we change? What, what culture can we shape? And I think about the home. You brought up the home quite a bit, so that's a segue to this next question. How can we teach our kids to not get caught in the trap of misusing um, technology? I- I'm thinking specifically as a parent right now. Um, all of my kids, I've got two in elementary, two in middle school, one in high school, and they have been in front of a screen for sometimes six to eight hours per day. Uh, you know, Then we try to limit their screen time uh, in the afternoons and in the weekends, um, but they've spent a lot of time in front of screens, ne- necessarily, um, and I think for a lot of kids, I was actually just talking to my son's principal, and she, she was talking about how like the lines have begun to blur, kids spend their, their moments during school and then every waking moment after that in front of the same screen. And, and they, they sort of swerve in and out of school and not school they'll they 'll have their class up on one you know like part of their screen i, I don 't know the, the term for that, but like you've got multiple screens going, and then they got a game going on the other side, and she, she said that there are multiple kids that like are checking out and falling asleep during class because they're up till three o'clock in the morning gaming. Uh, you know David and I were Pastor David and I were talking about that with you know, the youth, like this deep um, second reality world that kids are getting caught into. So this is like a real thing right now. So I'll I'll ask the question again, like how can we teach our kids to not get caught in the trap of misusing technology, especially when like there's an increased necessity for it right now?
1: Man, that is the question for parents right now. I, I, um, I don't have great answers. I'll point you to a resource. We were just talking about Andy Crouch earlier today Uh, There's a writer named Andy Crouch who has a book called The TechWise Family. And uh, if you're a parent and you're interested in sort of figuring out how to leverage technology wisely in your family, I I can't recommend that book enough. Um, His daughter actually just wrote a follow-up book called My TechWise Life, which is actually from the perspective of a... She's not a teenager any longer, but she's talking about her journey growing up in a home where there was real wisdom given to the, the use um, of technology, so I would highly recommend both of those books, I think they'll give you a good framework. And, and some pragmatic sort of suggestions, like he, he talks about treating phones like young children, what he means is, just one simple suggestion, put your phone to bed before you go to bed, wake up before your phone wakes up, as you do with young children, right? I always put my kids to bed before I go to bed, I always wake up before they do, because if I didn't, it'd be disaster in my house. And uh, so in our home, we practice that. So we no longer um, put our cell phones by our nightstands. We don't do that. We have a uh, charging station in our kitchen. Um, And so the phones just go there. So when we go in bed, we don't have our phones with us. And there's a lot of research to show how how detrimental that can be to fall asleep to the blue screen or even the orange screen. Um, The other thing I would say is uh, to encourage parents, I think, um, it gets back to another question we were talking about earlier you know for Gen Z and younger um, kids are like the first digital natives in world history meaning they were born into a world uh, where digital was the native tongue of their experiences, the native language so for, for you to detox them from that and help them appreciate analog experiences, and see the world come alive, alive in more embodied ways. It's like trying to introduce um, like cilantro to a young, like the first time I ever ate cilantro, I was in high school, and it was in a burrito, and I kid you not, you guys, I thought that somebody had put hand soap in my burrito. Do you not like cilantro? You like cilantro? No, you hate cilantro. Okay, that's how I felt about cilantro. But now, now you're, you're a fan, but now you're gonna hate me. Now, I will put cilantro in anything. Like, you can give me a vanilla milkshake and I'll <laughs> sprinkle cilantro in there. Like, I just love cilantro, but it took me time. The first time I tasted it, I was like, what is this, this is not food. And, to, and now, how is, this, how is this connected? If you are a parent, expect that sort of response from your kids. They're digital natives. So when you like, hey, let's put our phones away and just go on a hike for two hours, chances are if your kid has not done that with you before, they're going to be like, what is this? This tastes like soap in my mouth. But like just keep going and keep going with gentleness. Nobody shoves cilantro in my mouth. It's just like sprinkling. Well, try it like this. Try it like this. It's a lot of effort, a lot of experimentation, but our kids' lives are on the line, so I think it's worth the hard work.
0: I I know in my own home, this has been a challenge um, because our kids are constantly saying like, oh my friends have this. And my, you know, we were really late to the cell phone game with our son. Um, And you know, there are kids in like late elementary school that had phones and they're like, for us it was like, you're gonna get a phone when it's actually necessity to get a phone. Like you're traveling away from the home, we need to get a hold of you. (laughs) You don't need it in COVID because you're like right there. and, and then also it became with like uh, tech freedoms, the ability to watch specific movies and to be able to download specific games and to have tech, you know, all these different kind of tech freedoms. The conversation I've kept coming back to with our kids is you are going to be different. And sort of like the ex- expectation cilantro is gonna be strange, you are gonna be strange Your friends are working on a different system, and it it was, for me, I don't know who asked this question, but for me it was an amazing opportunity to explain in really basic terms the biblical concept of holiness. You know, holiness is not perfection, it's set-apartness, and just like the vessels in the temple were set apart for use as unto God, we are strange, we are set apart, and it means that there's gonna be difference between us and the world, it doesn't make us better than anyone else. It doesn't make us even necessarily more wise when it comes to these tech issues. It makes us different. Bare, you know, bare necessity here, we are different and you need to settle that now because this will be your future. If you are a Christian, this will be your future for the rest of your life. Um, deep community uh, inevitably involves conflict the internet is enticing because you can just disappear out of conflict. You mentioned things like that earlier. What advice would you give for dealing with conflict in a Christ-like way, especially when it evolves power and culture?
1: Oh, man. Um, I assume the question means online. Um, maybe not. Is, is there more to the question? I mean, because the, the question about Just power and culture in general dealing with conflict, that's just such a a huge... uh,
0: Let's think, I I would think maybe more within, like, when those issues of power and and culture are now coming up in the church. Like you mentioned, like, a a Trump supporter and a Biden supporter in the same room. Maybe these issues of culture and power within the same group arising, causing potentially conflict.
1: yeah. Well, um, you said it earlier during the the worship gathering, and I, I thought it was so beautiful and so profound. I don't know how many of you were here, but about the palm branches, which points to again the sort of upside-down nature of God's kingdom. You know, you know, you've we've heard that phrase before, upside down. So we just kind of take it for granted, like it just means like it's it's just a quirky phrase to describe how weird the kingdom of God is, and I actually think upside down means literally what it means. This is why when Jesus says, like, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, it's not Jesus being, like, quirky, weird, like, oh, it kind of doesn't make sense, right? No, it's not that. Like, he's not doing that. He means it quite literally. Like, if if you take something and flip it upside down, then literally, the thing that was last the, at the bottom and the thing that was first—you flip it, and now the last thing is first, and the first thing is actually at the bottom. So if we take—if we take that seriously, if we take seriously the fact that um, Jesus humbled himself, as Paul tells us, right, um, and didn't didn't grab at equality with God, although equality with with God was his to the fullest since the beginning but instead relinquishes that and I'll use intentionally cultural hot button words here he relinquishes power he relinquishes privilege for the sake of the other to love so and you know I I don't serve on staff here and I'm gonna go home today so I can say stuff and if you're mad, you can just take it to your pastors here. Here's what I would say. You know, all of the cultural language right now, that's just about like, you know, we have like, it's all about um, if you have power, if you have privilege, then you're the bad guy. We have to overthrow you and flip the system. Well, the reality is, I don't think the Bible really tells us that power and privilege are evil. I actually think the Bible tells us that power and privilege are the most incredible gifts you can lay down for the sake of the other. And so all of this all of this talk about like, you know, whatever, I don't want to get into all of the weeds of it because it gets pretty intense, but all of the conversation about power dynamics and culture today to me it's fascinating because it it's um talk of revolution and what is revolution it is essentially not changing the dynamic itself but just changing who's in power do you know what i mean like you revolt against the empire so that the empire can now be suppressed and you have the power or the control that's like all of the cultural language today. Jesus is not not interested in revolution in that way. Jesus is interested, and this is clear in the Bible, in reconciliation and renewal. Like the reconciling of all things, which is an awesome phrase, and I didn't make it up, that's in the Bible. Like to make all things new, you know? And I think we have to take that posture as followers of Jesus. Any conversation we have. So what it means is when somebody says something about power and culture and gets argumentative, even if you believe a particular thing that isn't what they believe, I think as followers of Jesus, we have to ask the question, not how do I I win this argument, but how do I reconcile what is here? And reconcile does not mean like unabashed agreement. It means something much deeper, like on a, on a very human level. How do I draw this person, even though they're pushing me away with their argument, how do I do the upside down thing? Because the right side up thing is when they push, you push back. That's what the world tells us, right? The upside down thing is when they push, you draw them close. And here's the really crazy like, ninja, judo kind of thing. When someone is pushing you, there's a way, like literally in judo, like the the martial art of judo, there's a way in which rather than causing friction and pushing back, judo is the art, I'm not a judoka, but I've read this. I've never done it. There's a way in which you use their angry momentum toward you to like draw them into submission. But the way you do it is not to push back, it's to, it's to grab them and lean them further into you. And um, it's one of the really powerful things about Judo as a martial art, it's almost like a disarming martial art. They're not really intending to like use brute strength, they're using your sort of momentum and energy to essentially like, sup- like, suppress the anger and bring it to a place of calm and peace. And um, that sounds like an advertisement for, like, a judo, you know, (laughs) gym or something. I don't know if there's, whatever. Um, But that's what I would say. I I think, uh, you know, remember that as a follower of Jesus, you're you're not trying to win an argument. You're trying to win a, a soul, you know. And the way we do that is to turn the other cheek, to st- certainly stand firmly on truth. I'm not saying, like, be flimsy about what you believe. Like, oh, I guess you're right. I guess there are many gods, or whatever. Or maybe Jesus is still dead. You're right. That's not what I mean. I mean, stand firm on truth, but do so in such a way that you pull them in when they're, you know, pushing away. And I think um, there's lots of ways to do that, obviously, that you can get into.
0: Uh, well, guys... Thank you, Jay. We're so appreciative of your time and just even this Q&A. Would you guys mind giving Jay a round of applause?
1: (laughs) Thanks, you guys.